It is almost Erev Tisha B'Av, and as we know, our thoughts and our feelings need to be focused a little bit differently than they otherwise would be on a regular week. Uh, these are days that commemorate Avelus, mourning, destruction, Churban. To me, personally, I find it a little bit difficult to connect to the concept of Beis Amigdash, of Churban, on that grand scale. But for me, I find that the most powerful connection that our generation has, at least for myself, is when you think about the agonizing memory of the Shoah, of the Holocaust, which has impacted all of our collective lives, not only for those who are survivors, who of course have been impacted and will forever be impacted, but for those growing up in a post-Holocaust generation, this for us is something that is obviously the most, the closest experience of Churban that we can really understand and have an appreciation for. And many of the stories are well known, and many of us have been to Yad Vashem or to Holocaust museums or read the books or seen the videos and watched the testimonials and the harrowing details of each and every story, and every one of them is unique, is specific, and is important to focus on. But that's not what I want to focus on today. There's so much to talk about in that regard, and there is so much that has already been said by those who know a lot more about the details than I do. But I have always found that the Hashkafa the theology of such an enormous national calamity is something that we really don't speak about, is something that we don't focus on. Um, I've been completely fascinated by that aspect of the Shoah, by that aspect of the Holocaust, um, and I thought it would be worth, you know, being that it's almost Tisha B'Av, and it's a time for us to focus on these kinds of topics, I thought this would be uh, an appropriate time to give a little bit of thought into what exactly the theology, the, the hashkafa of the Holocaust is supposed to be for all of us. And some of this might be troubling to some. I'm not giving an opinion. I'm just going through a discussion together with everybody. So just be patient until we get through some of what's on here. And I'm happy to talk a little bit more afterward with anyone that wants to further the conversation. I think one of the most foundational principles in the whole discussion that we have about how do you wrap your head around the Holocaust, is the Gemara Mesechas Brachos Dafei. And the Gemara there writes very explicitly, Imroa Adam Sheyisurin Ba in Alav. If somebody sees that terrible things are happening at any level in their life, it doesn't have to be such a tremendous calamity. But if somebody sees that there's something difficult going on in their life, so the Gemara says, Yefashvesh B'maisav. You have to look into yourself, look deeply inside of yourself, and try to understand why this is happening. Now, that's a very difficult thing for us to do, because how are we supposed to know? We are not God. We don't have a full and complete understanding of why things happen in the world. So how are we supposed to interpret why things happen to us? But the Gemara says, everybody has an obligation. How do we know that? This is actually learned from a Pasuk in Eicha, where the Pasuk says, at the time of the Churban Beis Amigdash, that every person looked inside of themselves and said, we are going to look into our ways, we're going to look into what we are doing, what perhaps we have done right, what perhaps we have done wrong. We're going to try to do tshuva. The only way to do tshuva is to have a recognition and understanding of what a person may have done wrong that could bring them to this point. The Gemara then says, if you go through this whole calculation and you go through this whole self-reflection and you come up with nothing that's so glaringly obvious, of course, Everybody does a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But there's nothing in my life that seems to be commensurate with what I'm having an experience of right now. Then says the Gemara, you have a right to assume this is Yisurim Shalahava. 
Now that's a very unusual circumstance. The Rambam writes in the Mor Nebuchim that that is something that doesn't happen often. Usually we assume that things are Mida Kenegen Mida. It's very unusual that you have a situation of Yisurim Shalahava. It's that Gemara that was the foundation for much of the discussion in post-Holocaust Jewry when they were trying to wrap their heads around what just happened. I think the immediate shock of what took place left us in a position where nobody was even able to think or talk about it. It took 30 or 40 years for people to really start having conversations about what just happened and how do we have an understanding of what happened to us as a people. So Rav Shach was one of the ones who was at the forefront of this conversation. I find his perspective to be somewhat startling, very surprising. And his outlook is one that was not accepted by many of his contemporaries, as we will see. I'm going to present here Rav Shach's uh, position. I just took out the main points of his argument. And then the response of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was also a great leader here in the United States. Rav Shach lived in Eretz Yisrael. He was the leader of Haredi Jewry there. And they had very, very opposing perspectives on this issue, on this question. But what I find fascinating about it is Rav Shach wrote this piece. He wrote this open letter to the community in the year 1990. 1990 was 40 plus years after the Holocaust finished, after everything was over. And yet it took 40 years for the leadership of the Jewish community to start having the opportunity to even begin to process what happened, which I think makes a lot of sense. If you read or you lived with someone who happened to have lived through this experience, you understand why it could take perhaps more than 40 years. There are many survivors who never spoke about their experiences at all because it was just something that was too painful of a conversation to even be had. So Rav Shach writes what in his position is the outlook, the perspective that we're supposed to have. Let's see what he writes. He says, this is an open letter. Everyone can have it here. It's on number Aleph on the sheet. He says, I would like to pose a question. And this is what he says is a machshava shemna keres etzli harbei shanim. This is something that has been agitating, aggravating, troubling me for many years. When you say many years, it's 40 plus years that this is bothering him. And what is that? Haita shoah lefnei asrot shanim. We experienced the Holocaust more than 40 years ago. Bishoazu hushmedu shisha million yehudim. We know that 6 million Jews at least were murdered mercilessly in the Holocaust. So the question that he wants to pose to us is, With all of the deep and tremendous pain and sorrow that that caused us, there is no family that has not had some kind of connection to the Shoah. Uh, every family had some kind of relative. Everybody was impacted in some way, either direct impact or indirect, some kind of distant relative, something of that nature. Isn't it shocking then? How could it be that every Jewish family living today has been impacted by the Shoah somehow, either one degree of separation or two or three degrees of separation. And yet, we've never sat down, he says, to ask ourselves, why did this happen? How could that not be something that bothers you? And how can this be something that has never come to the consciousness of the Jewish people in the last 40 years, he writes. This is 1990. 
Do you believe that God is barbaric? Do you believe that he is uh, sadistic? Do you believe that he's cruel? So we don't believe that. If that's the case, then This is the question that everybody needs to ask, and that is, we're very conflicted. On the one hand, we believe Hashem Hashem Kel Racham Lechanun. On the other hand, we look at what's going on in the world and we ask ourselves, this just doesn't fit, it doesn't match, it can't be. We have no way of making sense out of it. Hello, Dabarhu. Hayim Zebechinam. Do you believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu did this just because, just because, for no other reason? Hem Yesh Bekocho Shabbasar Vadam. Para Adam Kehitler. If you have the most evil, vicious, horrific human beings like Hitler, Yemach Shemov, Azichro, do you think God would have given him the ability to just go on this rampage and kill six million Jews? Do you believe that? Is that possible? It's hard for me to accept that, says Rav Shach. It's hard for me to believe that. If you believe that, then it means you believe there's no Ashkach in the world. It means you believe... Now, hang on, just have some patience. But if you believe that, it means... You don't believe in the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is involved in our world. That must be the conclusion. So if you don't think about this, he says, it means you're a very shallow person. It means you, you don't look at the world and you don't try to understand what's happening. If you do come to the conclusion that, hey, you know, there are some evil people out there and they just kill whoever they want and God lets them do what they want at times, that's also very troubling. What must be the answer, says Rav Shach? What must be the answer? So here's the paragraph that I would have rather not get into. But he writes, the answer is, in his opinion, it has to be that we deserve this. Now, the response to that is, it's impossible to deserve such a thing. How could it be that any generation in the history of the world can deserve such a reaction, such a response? But he says, in his opinion, it has to be that some terrible things happened along the way. And we, as a people, were not doing what we should have. And this was going on for so many years until God got to a boiling point and he said, there's no other option. I have to destroy them. That's his understanding of everything that took place. You can read this in the next paragraph. I find it a little bit gripping to actually read through. So that's why I'm not going to do it. But I put it on here for your own interest. But that was his opinion. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, who lived here in the United States and also spoke a lot about current events and gave a lot of perspective, thought that this was an absolutely outrageous perspective to share. He thought that this was unconscionable to say that this is what happened. He was infuriated by this op-ed, by this letter that Rav Shach put out to the world. And he thought that this was something that is an unforgivable perspective on the Shoah and the Holocaust. Especially, he writes to talk at a time when there are survivors who are still alive and this is what you're going to tell them? Is that really what you believe? I mean, how can this be? So the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe felt this way. Rav Soloveitchik writes in his uh, Svarim also that he felt the Holocaust is something that is so beyond our understanding and it's not something we can start to delve into. It's not something we can begin to gain an understanding of. There is no way that this is midah kenegin midah. But I find that the Lubavitcher Rebbe's perspective is something that's very fascinating. Um, you will notice if you study a little bit about this that there were a lot of the leaders of this generation who, of the previous generation, who shared perspectives on 
the Holocaust and tried to make meaning out of this. And this was a major debate. This was a very interesting discussion, a painful discussion about how to make sense out of what happened. There were those who said, you know what, we can't make sense, so just leave it and don't discuss it and don't get into it because there's no way you're going to come to an understanding. There were others who said, what kind of life is that? Not to try to make sense out of the things that we experience and especially something that's so obvious a part of our experience as a people. It's not something we have a right to ignore. So this is a very, very fascinating uh, debate. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe writes as follows. It's true. The Gemara does say that when something happens to an individual, they have to look inside of themselves, they have to think, why did this happen? How did it happen? What can we do? What should we have done better? However, he says there are certain experiences of life that you have to believe are beyond that. There are certain experiences of life that he says are not onesh alavonos. They cannot be in response. They cannot be as a reaction to anything that we may or may not have done. It can't be. It's impossible. Now, the Gemara already introduces us to that concept and says there are some people who have Yisurim Shalahava. Now, my understanding of that Gemara would be there are some individual people to say that there were six million people who had Yisurim Shalahava is something that's hard to swallow also. So that's what the Lubavitcher Rebbe is trying to struggle with here. And he says, in his opinion, He says, in my opinion, there are certain things that happen in the world that have no way to understand them. And it's just that we will never appreciate. It's HaKadosh Baruch who felt for whatever reason this is what needed to be done. It had no connection at all to anything that was happening at the time. No connection at all to anything that happened in the past. This is just the reality of the way HaKadosh Baruch who wanted to run his world. And we have to accept that. And there's no reason to beat ourselves up and no reason for self-reflection because this has nothing to do with us. That's the way the Lubavitcher Rebbe understood it. And that too, I find, is a little bit unsettling. It's almost as if, so you mean to tell me things just happen? With no cheshbon? We know that the Torah says, Hatsur tamim pa'alo ki chol of mishpat. Pasuk and Parshas Ha'azinu were told that everything HaKadosh Baruch Hu does is with measured judgment. Everything is for a particular reason. So you mean to tell me that this was just a gzera? What was the reason for the gzera? If you have a king, if you have a president, if you have a country, you have a government that just wakes up one day and decides to put absolutely outrageous laws on its citizens, they're going to revolt, right? They're all going to fight back and they're all going to say, current events, right? They're all going to say, this doesn't make any sense. We're not going to accept this. So what does that mean? Do we live in a fair society? Do we live in a fair world? Or are you just saying a melech, a king, a government has a right to make whatever decisions they want, even if it's not in the best of interest of the citizens, even if it's not in the best... And we don't have to understand it. And all you need to know is this is exera and you should respect it. That's also very hard to swallow. So how do you, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with this? Says the Lubavitcher Rebbe, his feeling is this cannot be in reaction in response to anything. It's impossible, he writes, that anybody would have been able to do this. Look at the next paragraph where he writes, Benido didan, hashmada shisha million yehudim When you watch what happened in the Shoah. Shoah yuma shalo haiso dugmasa b'meshach kol hadoras. When we had a destruction, a devastation that the world has never known before, 
It is impossible to believe that this is a response to anything that people had done. Says the Lubavitcher even the Satan who hates us, who tries to destroy us incessantly, could never have come up with so many reasons to destroy the Jewish people like that. Impossible. This whole thing can't be. And therefore, he says, There is no way to understand it. And he says, the only thing to think about is that this was just a gzairah. HaKadosh Baruch Hu decided. It had nothing to do with that time in history. It had nothing to do with those people. It had nothing to do with that generation. And it's just a gzairah of HaKadosh Baruch Hu that this is what the world needed at that time. Again, as I said, I find that a little bit unsettling also. How do you understand that? And then he writes in his last paragraph here is his attack on Rav Shach where he says, and you're going to say this to a generation of Ud Mutzal Me'esh, you're going to say this about a generation of Jews who stood up with courage, who survived, who rebuilt, who brought us to where we are today. You're going to say that this was an Onesh on their parents, on their siblings, on their in-laws, on their aunts and uncles, on their cousins. Really, you believe that? And he believes this is an unforgivable perspective that Rav Shach shared about, uh, about the Holocaust. Again, I'm not giving any answers. I'm just, this is something that I think about. It's something that I wonder. It's something that troubles me. I don't know if it troubles anybody else. But it's something that I do wonder. How do you understand this as a Baal Bitochon, as a Baal Emuna? And when you take the Shoah out of the equation for a moment... We spoke two weeks ago about Nisyonos in general. When you think about that in general, this is a conversation that individuals need to have when there are things going on in their own lives or in their family life. It's something to think about. Where do we draw the line between saying this is just Xerah of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, this is Yisurim Shalahava, and where do we draw the line and say, no, this is obviously something that requires our perspective, that requires us to think, it requires us to respond, to react, to change, to look deeply into ourselves and try to understand what this is all about. In terms of current events, I think there's no better person that put it in our terms than Rabbi Sachs. And I, I love his writings and I, I just love his command of the English language. But he writes in two different places, if Jews were condemned to die together, shall we not struggle to find a way to live together? Which is such an amazing way to say it. If Jews were condemned to die together, shall we not struggle to find a way to live together? And I think he writes again, precisely because the final solution was addressed to the biological, not the theological community of Jews. Think about that. Every Jew biologically was counted among the Jews. And nobody cared what faction of Judaism you were a part of. It was irrelevant. So he writes, because of the fact that this was addressed biologically and not theologically, it reinforced the traditional understanding of Knesset Israel as a community of birth, not of faith. If the covenant of hate did not distinguish between religious and secular Jews, believers and heretics, neither can its only possible redemption, which is the covenant of love. If you were to ask what our response to the Holocaust should be, I would say this, and this sums it all up. 
What is the response to the Holocaust? Marry and have children, bring new Jewish life into the world, build schools and make communities, have faith in God who had faith in man, and make sure that his voice is heard wherever evil threatens. Pursue justice, defend the defenseless, have the courage to be different and fight for the dignity of difference. Recognize the image of God in others and defeat hate with love. Twice a year on Yom HaShoah and the ninth of Av, sit and mourn for those who died and remember them in your prayers, but most of all, continue to live lives as Jews. That's the response to the Holocaust. What do we do about all the theological questions that we have? It's a problem. It's a major problem. However, what many have said is, the question about where was God in the Holocaust is one question, but the other question is, where was humanity in the Holocaust? Where was humanity in the Holocaust? How did humanity allow this to happen? Is a much larger question. I can't say larger or smaller. It's of equal proportion. Where was humanity and how could humanity have allowed this to take place? If you've ever been, I have never been, but if you've ever been to all of the concentration camps and you have an understanding from what I've read and from what I've heard, these were right next door to thriving communities. Everybody was well aware of what was going on. It's not just that a couple of evil people decided one day that they were going to wreak havoc on the entire Eastern Europe as it was known back then. That's not what happened. This was a concerted effort by the entire population. It seems that everybody was in on this. Everybody was aware of what was happening. So to say that the community in America was not aware of all the harrowing details of what was going on, maybe that's true, hard to know, maybe that's true. But to say that the people living there were not aware of what was happening, it's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. And our question is not only on the Rebona Shalom, how can it be that HaKadosh Baruch Hu did this and what is the message? But our question really is on humanity. How is it possible that humanity allowed this to happen? And he writes, rather than engaging in theological reflection on the Holocaust, the survivors of Hasidic and Yeshiva communities of Eastern Europe concentrated on having children to replace a lost generation and rebuild their shattered townships and institutions in Israel and across America, as if to say that death is only redeemed by new life. And that's true. And that is exactly what the heroes of the past generation did for us and continue to live on with everything that they contributed to our society and to our world. And it's inspirational to think about it and to realize how much courage they had and how much they brought themselves to build and to do everything necessary to bring us to the best possible reality that we can have. Beyond that, I find it very interesting, not only when you sit back and reflect about what happened and where was the Rebona Shalom and how do you fit everything into this puzzle, I find it interesting in its own right that there were survivors themselves who had very different perspectives. As we know, there were many who lost faith, which is understandable, but I'm talking about those who stuck to the faith and those who were extremely courageous and continued to believe as Jews that they should have a Muna and Bitachon, there were very different perspectives on that as well. And I find that to be very, very interesting in its own right. There was a, uh, a Rav, his name was Rabbarach Rabinovich. I don't know if anybody here, if that name sounds familiar. He passed away in 1997. He was actually the Munkacher Rebbe. If you've heard of Munkach and Borough Park, he is the son of the previous Munkacher Rebbe. Now what happened? The original Munkacher Rebbe only had daughters. His son-in-law, well, I think he only had one daughter. His son-in-law was Rabbarach Rabinovich, 
And a couple of years before the Holocaust, I believe, he then took the position of being the Munkach Rebbe. His father-in-law had passed away. Then, obviously, everything was destroyed. Somehow, he miraculously made it to Eretz Yisrael at the time. And as a reaction, as a response to everything that he had been through and the entire experience of being in the camps and seeing communities being wiped out and living through that with his own community and all the troubling pain and suffering of his own family being murdered in front of his own eyes, he changed perspective. Uh, the Munkacher dynasty was very well known to be anti-Zionist, anti-Israel, and they were very outspoken about it. And he had a change in heart. He had a very different perspective after the Shoah and after he ended up in Eretz Yisrael and after he saw the calamity and then the rebuilding. After he saw all of that, everything changed for him. At some point, um, they say that he became so disappointed that the Jewish community after the Holocaust, almost like Olam Kimen Haganoig, people were just like, all right, let's move on. You know, like it's time to do other things. And he felt they were not impacted enough by what had taken place. And he ended up moving to Brazil. He became a Rav in Brazil. He gave up his position of leadership in the Munkacha dynasty. He didn't want any part of it anymore. And uh, he raised his children in Brazil. He then sent his son from Brazil to the United States to learn here in Yeshiva. And uh, I think they say that Rabbi Yol Teitelbaum, the Satmar Rebbe, was the one who was influential in making his son interested in taking over the position of his father and his grandfather, even though his father had neglected all of this and had no interest in it. But um, the current Munkach Rebbe in Borough Park is actually a son of this original Munkach Rebbe who neglected um, the position that he was given. Um, it had a very tragic end. In the end of his life, him and his sister ended up suing their father. It's was, it was a very sad very sad end. They actually have family members here in the five towns who are... Uh, the Munkach Rebbe's sister lives in Lawrence. I don't know if anybody knows who she is. But there's a whole famous story that they, they wanted the artifacts and they wanted the, the whole heritage. They felt it belonged to them. Whatever it was, doesn't matter. But Rabbi Baruch was a great thinker. At the time of the Shoah, he was a great leader. And he thought a lot about what was going on. Now, his conclusion as he was living through this was that I'm going to remain a Balbi Tachon. I'm going to remain a believer in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that was the conclusion of many. Of many. Now that's a very difficult conclusion to come to after experiencing everything that they did, but that was their conclusion and that's what they felt very strongly they were going to hold on to. At the same time, even in that, the perspective was so different. And what I'm going to show you here is, on the one hand, you have the Sefer called Binas Nevonim, which is the um, diary of... This Rabbi Baruch Rabinovich, the Munkach at the time. And in the opposite perspective, you have the diary of the Kloisenberger Rebbe. I'm sure many of us have heard about the Kloisenberger Rebbe's story. He was a giant among men. He was, he was an angel. And uh, the Kloisenberger Rebbe was an individual who lost his wife and 11 children in the Holocaust. And then after he got out of it, he rebuilt. And look what he built. He built a tremendous following. And he built Laniato Hospital and the whole Kiryat Sons in Israel. And Netanya was built up. Amazing, amazing what he did. Really, when we say Hisnari me Afar Kumi, you think about what one individual can do, it's absolutely astounding. Um, Rav Asher Weiss has many stories. He was a Talmud of the Klozenberger Rebbe. His eldest brother married the Klozenberger Rebbe's daughter. And uh, actually, the Klozenberger Rebbe made his parents shidduch in the DP camps after the war. And uh, the story about the Klozenberger Rebbe and Rav Asher Weiss's father was that 
after the Shoah, after the Holocaust, the Klezenberger Rebbe felt it was very important to try to give as much dignity as they can to the Jewish bodies that were strewn about all throughout the land. And he was really making a concerted effort to go and bury as many people as he could, but he needed help. And he asked Rav Asher Weiss's father, who at the time was, I think, 20 or 21 years old, after they were liberated, he asked them to join him in this effort. And they were driving up and down in the American Jeep, and they were burying people. And at some point, after weeks and weeks of doing this, um, Rav Asher Weiss's father turned to him and said, you know, I have no strength. I have no energy after everything we lived through and all the camps we were in. I, I can't do this anymore. I've been Moser Nefesh enough. It's time for me to go back and live life. And the Klausenberger Rebbe turned to him and he said, everything you've done until now is Mesiras Haguf. Mesiras Nefesh means closing your Gemara when you need to close the Gemara and help the Jewish people. And that's what you need to do now. Everything you did until now is Mesiras Haguf. From here on in, you need to do Mesiras Nefesh. You need to close the books in order to be able to be helpful to other people. At the time, the story goes that he told him that he would be willing to give him a bracha for anything in the world. And all he asked for was that all of his children should be Talmidei Chachamim and leaders of the next generation. And he has seven sons who are all tremendous Talmidei Chachamim. He has a son who married the Klezmerger of his daughter. He has another son who's the Abbezdin in Montreal. He has Rav Asher Weiss, who's one of the younger of the children. And this was the bracha of the Klezmerger Rebbe that was Makuyam in its full and complete state. So this is a very interesting discussion that they had. Again, they're not talking to each other, but if you look at the perspectives, you see very, very different perspectives. So let's read together from this Binas Nevonim. This is, again, the diary of Rav Baruch Rabinovich, who passed away in 1997. And he writes, This is number Gimel. Although it's true, we knew we were Bali Bitachon, we went to school and we were raised in religious homes and we had a good foundation before all of this happened. We grew up in communities where they taught us, where they educated us, and we felt we were very strong in our convictions before we started. Although we knew all of this, Although we knew that all this must have come from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, where else could it have come from? And he said, we quoted Psukim from Eov, with all of that being said, You know, sometimes you can tell yourself something, and you can say it a million times, but you don't believe it. You can say all the right things, but you have a hard time accepting it. So he said, I knew that this was from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and we all spoke about it amongst each other, but he said, It was impossible in our heart of hearts to feel that and to internalize it. We accepted the Xera of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, We could not get over the feeling we couldn't get over the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, whatever this Gzeira is, and you're, you're, you're here with us, but you just allowed us to be Hefker. You're just allowing this world to unravel. He said, honestly, in my heart of hearts, he's speaking very openly, very candidly, and he says, in my heart of hearts, I felt as if 
I felt as if you don't care to know what's happening to us. As if our Kaddish Baruch Hu turned his back to us. As if you're not realizing what our enemies are doing to us. You did not accept our tefillos. Did we not cry enough? Did you not hear us cry? Where were you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Although I knew in my heart of hearts that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was there, but he said, here I am experiencing this, writing down in my journal, in my diary, what I'm feeling. And he said, it just didn't feel like you were there. He says, David HaMelech writes how much he loves HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but yet at the same time he cries out and he says, Lama taster panecha, tishkach eneinu velachatseinu, I don't know how to say that word, velachatseinu, how could it be that you ignore us? How could it be that you allow all of this craziness in our lives to go on? It doesn't make sense. David HaMelech says that at the same time that he says, Sama nafshi lelokim lekel chai. I, I, have a thirst, I have a yearning for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and I feel so close to him, but yet I feel so distant at the same time. Ech Shar, he says, how is it possible? Our tefillos were not answered. You had these murderers who destroyed our lives. We saw that the greatest leaders of our generation were burnt to death. As if they didn't exist. You have Jews who are walking around with a hair's breadth between life and death. We had a thriving, bustling community, and yet every day we see it gets worse and worse. Entire cities are being cleared out from their inhabitants. There was no one left. You see citadels of Torah, yeshivos, and infrastructures that we have are being destroyed one after the other. And he says, you look at the three lines, all of this gave us the feeling, all of this made us feel that HaKadosh Baruch Hu Hid his face from us. I'm not saying that you, God, were not involved, but he says, I can't help but to say that I'm terrified and I don't understand and I don't feel your embrace and I don't feel your love. And I feel as if you've turned your back on us. And this is an amazing account of a very God-fearing Jew who feels very in love but very distant at the same time. Who's very conflicted. Go to the next paragraph. When I'm playing hide-and-go-seek with somebody and I don't want them to see me. There are two options of how I can make sure they don't see me. Number one, I can cover over their face. Or, I can turn my face away from them that they don't see me. 
When we talk about the reality that there are times in history when HaKadosh Baruch Hu hides his face, we think that it means HaKadosh Baruch Hu turns around and we don't fully understand what's going on. We think it means that HaKadosh Baruch Hu just doesn't pay attention to what's going on here. He has other things that he's busy with. And he just forgot about us. O master aspana bekaf yado. You know, I had someone recently who was talking to me. They're going through a very, very difficult time. And they said, you know, it's a big world. Like, is it so hard for God to pay attention to me? Do I cost him so much more energy? And when I was talking to this woman about it, I mean, when I was listening to this woman talk about it, I should say, I was very taken by her perspective. I, I cried a lot with her. And I just felt that's the perspective that sometimes people have. Is it so hard for the Rebona Shalom to pay attention to me? Look how many things he's doing. Look at the world. Look what's happening. He doesn't have an extra five minutes to just pay attention to what's happening in my life and, and fix it and take care of this. See, so he says, sometimes we have the perspective as if HaKadosh Baruch who turns his face and we're not able to see him. Look at the next paragraph. We've read and we've learned all the psukim about Amuna, about everything. But he says, As we say, the Navi Yeshaya, one of the Haftorahs that we read, The Navi Yeshaya, in describing the Churban, says the same thing. Eretz Yisrael was crying out that HaKadosh Baruch Hu forgot about her. God is not paying attention to me. Although we believe that there was some kind of Gzera that HaKadosh Baruch Hu curated all of this, but he says, I couldn't get past the fact that I just didn't feel HaKadosh Baruch Hu with me during this time. Now again, that's his perspective. You can read the whole thing in its entirety. But what I find so interesting about all this is you look at the same time another great Jew who lived through the same experience again you can't compare anyone's experience but it sounds like both Rabbi Rabinovich and the Klezmerger Rabbi had pretty horrible horrific experiences in their own right each one in their own way but when you look at the way the Klezmerger Rebbe frames it you just get such a different picture it's like he was living in a different world, in a different planet. And it fascinates me. He says, we came into the camps and we all said to ourselves, I don't know what he means, we all said to ourselves. I think it means he said to other people. But he says, we all said, That was the premise. Period. Full stop. And here we are in Gates al doesn't get worse than this. But we all said, Lo ki I had no fear because I knew that Akadish Baruch was with me.
And he writes, we say, We say it in our davening that HaKadosh Baruch Hu fills the world and I believed it, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is with me in Auschwitz. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence fills up the world and I felt it everywhere I was. They have a story in the biography of the Klosenberger Rebbe that when he came into the camps, he saw there were three young boys who were there. And they were on the same transport as he was. And he turns to all of them after they got off and they finally realized what was happening. And he had a conversation with them in Yiddish. But he said, do you believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is here with us? And they struggled. And finally they turned back to him and they said, yes, we believe. Yes, we believe. And he turned back to them and he said, don't ever forget whatever happens to you here. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is always with you. That was his only message. That was his instruction before these three young boys were separated from him. So he writes, Auschwitz. Look here, number Dalit. He writes this his own experience. He got to Auschwitz. He says the exact time, the day, the date when he got there. After we came, there were some of us who they felt were strong enough, able-bodied individuals who could do work. So they didn't kill us. They told us we could be in a labor camp. So they wanted to feed us. So they gave us food. He said it was strange. They served meat for breakfast. Nobody eats meat for breakfast, but he says we were all starving. Nobody had anything to eat. So whatever they're willing to give us, we were willing to take. And he says, he describes the scene, which I didn't put in here, but he describes the scene, how everybody was pushing and shoving to try to get something from what was being served. All the people I was with tried to encourage me that I should join them and stand on the line and, and push and try to get some food. I told them, These evil people already took everything away from me. They even took away my name, my identity. They put a number on me. You think I'm going to let them take this away from me also? I'm going to eat trade? Now, make no mistake, he writes. Of course, the halacha would say, you should eat trade. And everybody, he encouraged everybody to go and eat and do what they had to do. There's no question about it, but he says, for myself, I was going to hold on to that one last thing that I had. The one last decision I was going to be able to make for myself. And that was going to be, I was resolute that I was not going to eat treif while I was in Auschwitz. I don't care if I'll die from it, but I was not going to submit myself to that. Amazing. You know, I have people who text me from Israel, or a lot of people who don't text. What do we do about kashras in Israel? Is it really a problem? Is it really this? I think about the story all the time. So you won't go to that restaurant. So you won't go to that restaurant. I don't think we have to live with Jewish guilt every moment of the day. But like, come on. We have enough food to eat. We have enough places to go. If it's a question about Hashkafa, just don't go there. You need everything. 
There are other ways to fill your time, other things to do, other places to go. Think about how important kashras is to people. Think about the lengths they're willing to go. And listen what he says. He says, I fasted that entire day, Yom Shishi Tzomalei Pshuto Kimashmo. I did not have a single thing to eat all day. When I came that evening, Friday night, I was starving. Of course. We had been on this transport. Nobody gave us any food for the days that we were traveling. Finally, we got there. Everybody got some food. And I chose not to participate. I was starving. Shabbos morning again. They call out to everybody, just like they did on Friday morning. They call out to everybody that they should come and join in and get online to get some food. Again, I promised myself I'm not going. And I shriveled up into myself and I said, I don't care what everybody else is doing. I refuse to give in to this. When the, what do you call it, the pans emptied out, there was nobody left there. I watched as everybody ate. I watched as there was nothing left there to eat anymore. And I began to cry. And the stream of my tears opened up. And I couldn't stop crying. He says, I was not a big crier. It wasn't my thing. But it came to a point where I was so weak and I was so hungry and I was so starving. And I was watching everybody else around me. And I couldn't control myself. I took upon myself that I'm going to accept with love of HaKadosh Baruch Hu everything that was happening. That Shabbos afternoon, I got into an uncontrollable cry and he said, I reached out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and I said, I'm the only one here who's standing up out of respect to you. I'm alone. Everybody else is doing what they have to do, but I promise myself I'm going to do what I feel is right. You have taken everything from me. You have killed my wife and 11 children. You think I'm going to go and eat treif? It's amazing. He says, I'm telling you, God, I'm not going to eat this food. Take care of me. As I'm going through this hysterical experience, there was a very disoriented Jew who walked in. He walks right up to me and he engages me in conversation. And he asks, Are you the Kloisenberger Rebbe? I was terrified. He assumed that the Germans had sent him in to find the Kloisenberger Rebbe because they wanted to kill him. So he wasn't sure what to answer. He was scared. We were the first into the crematoria. The ones who were the respected members of the community were the first ones to be killed. So he said, I assumed that this man was sent on a mission to find me. 
Aval tochke de dibor boy la Yehudi no saf vikorela evri. As this is going on, and I'm hesitating, I didn't want to answer. He says another Jew comes to me and he says, "Hincha mechuyev la geshes miyad samach ledelas omed mishu mamten alecha." Come, you must come immediately. There's somebody waiting by the door for you. He says, "I didn't have a choice. Kiim la geshes aladelas. I had to go to the door." He said, I assumed it was somebody who was trying to kill me. When I got to the door, I came to the door and I saw an elderly gentleman, a Jewish man. And he turns to me warmly and he says, You're the Klozimagareb. Does that mean your uncle... Like they're playing Jewish geography here. He says, does that mean your uncle was the Kishinever? And he says, I'm standing there and I'm asking myself, is this man crazy? Is this the appropriate time to start talking about our cousins and our aunts and uncles? What's with him? How does he know about my family? We're in Auschwitz. What is he doing? How does he know my family lineage? How does he know anything about me? And I said to him, Yes, it's true, that was my uncle. Immediately he says, Oh, that was your uncle? I loved your uncle. He sticks his hand into his pocket, takes out a plate filled with food, and he says, I brought you a plate of food that I knew was kosher because it looks like you're starving. And he says, This man disappeared. He gave me the plate of food. He gave me a loaf of bread. I never saw him again throughout all my years in the camps. I saw at that moment, I saw that there was a God. He says, although, and he writes here, although I told all the people around me, go eat whatever you can eat, get whatever you can get. But he said, at that moment, I felt validated. I felt HaKadosh Baruch who heard me. He heard me cry out to him. He heard me say to him that I have resolved that I will not bend my principles one more iota. It's not going to happen. I promised myself this is what I'm going to do. And the Rebona Shalom responded. And he said, And at that moment I took upon myself, I promised myself I'm going to continue on with this decision. And however long I'm going to be here, I will never give up on my principles. I took that loaf of bread, I made Kiddush, here it was, it was Shabbos, I made Kiddush. I sat down and I said, if you send somebody to give me food that I wanted, I'm going to sit down and have a Shabbos meal like I'm supposed to. And he sat there and made Kiddush, and he had a Shabbos meal. And I said, I can promise about myself. For the entire year that I was there in the death camps and the labor camps, I never once put a piece of non-kosher food in my mouth. I 
He said, for some reason, nobody, of all the German soldiers, nobody ever figured out who I was. They would have killed me a long time earlier. They never figured out who I was. So many times I saw that I was one moment away between Chaim and Maves. But he says, I survived. And it only reinforced my belief in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Amazing. You know, the Klesenberger Rebbe writes in his biography that there was a broken-hearted Jew who came to him and he started to cry to the Klesenberger Rebbe and he said, we are here and, and it's terrible and we're all in this together and this is so horrible. And the Rebbe said, You have no right to talk that way. So the man said, what do you mean? And the Klozimek Rebbe turned back to him and he said, if you want to describe your experience and you want to say, I'm here and this is terrible and I don't feel the presence of God, that's okay. You have every right to say that. But don't say that we all feel the same way because we don't. I don't feel the same way you feel. I feel HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Meloch HaLa I find this to be Inspiring, fascinating, hard to understand. But when you look at it in the contrast to another great Jew who lived at the same time through the same experience, who said, I went to the same schools and I had this foundational understanding, but I can't put it into practice. It just doesn't add up here where we are. That was his honest assessment of what he went through. And then you look at the Klausimberger Rebbe who went through the same experience and yet walked away with the opposite perspective. And it only strengthened his belief. And it's something that, again, I'm not giving answers, I'm just sharing perspectives. I think it's a lot to think about. It's a lot to consider. You know, I'll close. The Gemara writes in Meseches Brachos, quoting the Navi Yecheskel. The Navi Yecheskel talks about a kir barzel ben chau ben ha'ir. The Navi Yecheskel talks about an iron wall that was constructed between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the Jewish people at the time of the Churban Beis Amigdash. So what exactly does it mean that there's a Mechitza Shal Barzal, that there's this iron wall in between us and Avinu Shabashamayim? So the Gemara says it means that at the time of the Churban, there was some kind of major separation that was created between ourselves and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. A major lack of understanding, a huge gap in our perspectives. But at the same time, the Radak writes in his commentary on Yecheskel, it could have been described as anything. Why does the Navi Yecheskel choose to talk about a Mechitza Shah Barzel? What's Barzel? What's the significance? And says the Radak, there are two reasons why this is chosen. Number one, he says, Barzel is not particularly nice. Right? When you have iron, it doesn't look so aesthetically beautiful. And he says, at the time of the Churban Beis Hamikdash, the Jewish people were not so aesthetically beautiful. As we know, Chazal tell us, whatever was going on, plenty of things that made the Jewish people not put their best face forward. And that's what the Mechitza Shabarzel was trying to relay to all of us. But beyond that, says the Radak, there's a second message. What is the second message? The second message he writes is, The second message is that Barzel is indestructible. 
And what HaKadosh Baruch Hu was trying to impart to the Jewish people at the time was, Shalev Yisrael Chazek Kabarzel. That the Jewish spirit and the Jewish heart is as strong as iron. And that's what we've seen. And that's what we've experienced. That at the same time that there is a Mechitza Shal Barzel that sometimes leaves us bereft of understanding and leaves us in a place where we don't have a proper perspective and where we don't have an appreciation for what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is doing in His world, while all of that is true, we also have the opportunity on Tishabav to appreciate the lave barzel of the Jewish people. We think about both of those perspectives, both of those sides of the equation. We think about, on the one hand, the mechitza shel barzel, the barzel significance of the ugly face of the Jewish people at different points in history. But we also think about that lave barzel of the Jewish people. And that is the most inspiring part of all of this. When you think about the incredible courage, the unbelievable clarity of mission, of purpose, of understanding, of what they needed to do at that time, it's something I've asked myself many times. What would I have done, Rahman al-Islam? I don't know. I have a hard time saying with conviction that I would be like any of them. I don't think I would have. I don't think I would have remained a believer. I certainly don't think I would have gone on to then build the next generation of the Jewish community. I don't think I could swallow it. I don't think I have an understanding of it. But to see that that Mechitza Shabarzal is not only that which separates us from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but that which makes us so unique, the resolute decision of so many communities of Jews who have made it through and who have continued to stay on, who have continued to be strong, who have continued to build and to move forward and to believe in humanity, even though humanity had failed them so miserably, is something that to me is also an important takeaway message as we think about Tisha B'Av. It's not only about all the negativity. That's important to think about, but it's also important to think about where we've come and where we hope, Amir Tashem, to go. So.